Hello and TGIM. Uh, thank goodness it's Monday, because that means another episode of APW's property podcast series all about UK property. APW advises expats and others around the world in buying property in the UK and has been doing so for over 30 years. In these podcasts, we look at all manner of UK housing topics and have been throwing out our pearls of wisdom to our grateful global horde once a week. Today is market mooch time, where we swivel our heads around and take a backwards gaze at what's just happened, in the hope that it provides guidance on the future direction of travel. But we may need to do the full 360-degree head swivel to do that. Joining me in this head rotation today to make our regular mosey around last month's property news are the twin pinnacles of perception, Stuart and Callum Williamson. Hi, Stuart. Hey, Paul. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Hi, Callum. Hi, Paul. So that's the pair of total pillars uh, who are going to support the great canopy of insight that stops the foul weather from raining down on us. Um, my name's Paul Shearer, and I'm here to steer the podcast along a winding road into, well, a, a lovely park full of trees and flowers and nice things. That's the plan. Let's make it happen. Stuart, um, you keep your weather eye on all things market-based with your weekly market wrap on YouTube. Uh, what did you see in March? Okay, so what is going on? But I guess Rightmove reports recently that better-than-expected market surprises many as buyers return. So I'm guessing, as I always do, that the gloomsters have overdone things. Um, but, you know, the market isn't buoyant right across the whole of the UK. Things are patchy. The latest snapshot of buyer demand shows a number of people contacting agencies up by 11% in the last two weeks compared to the same period in 2019's more normal market. The number of sales agreed continues to rebound and is now just 11% down on the 2019 levels, recovering from the 15% down at the start of the year and the 30% down in the aftermath of the mini-budget debacle of Trush and... God, he's so good, I've forgotten his name. Quartain. No, don't. I've erased him from my memory. <laughs> Please. Average rates are at 15%. Five-year fixed mortgage now are 4.82%, down from October's highness, 5.9%. Whilst there is still an overall shortage of property for sale, it's down by 24% compared to 2019. There is more choice for buyers than a year ago, giving prospective buyers confidence for their onward move. Uh, Okay, well, let's uh, look at some other relevant numbers. Callum, what's happening with inflation? Inflation, right. Well, that's uh, been a big topic, obviously, recently. Uh, Good news. ONS figures published in February uh, of the January CPI rate, that's consumer price inflation, uh, show that the graph is heading downwards. Uh, We had a a peak annual rate in October of 11.1%. It dropped to 107 in November and then 10.5 in December and then again to 10.1 in January. So it's coming down. And the Bank of England has said that it expects inflation to fall quite quickly. So obviously, they've done their job correctly with the increased interest rates. Uh, but the bad news is that we're, there was a surprise jump in inflation in the February figures, which is perhaps why we had a, a rate increase recently. Um, on a monthly basis, the CPIH rose by 1% in February 2023, compared with a rise of 07 percent in February last year. Yeah, the CPIH is the one that includes housing, is is, is the housing um, inflation cost, basically. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so it's slightly different basket of goods, as they say, i.e. including the house. 
Um, the consumer price index, the CPI, rose by 10.4% in the 12 months to February, up from 10.1% uh, in January, which is that increase we were talking about. Uh, so on a monthly basis, CPI rose by 1.1% in February this year, compared with a rise of 0.8% in February last year, which was a more normal year. Yes, like you said, so it was a surprise blip in uh, inflation. They're still expecting it to come down, but uh, it's obviously subject to all manner of of things. And it went up in February. Figures published by the ONS, which is the Office for National Statistics, uh, said the largest upward contributions to the monthly change in both the CPIH and the CPI rates came from restaurants and cafes, food and clothing, and it was partially offset by downward contribu contributions from recreational and cultural goods and services, particularly recording media and motor fuels. Stuart, there was another Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee meeting. Um, Callum says that they raised interest rates. So w what happened? Well, I think they were caught between uh, you know, the rock and a hard place, really. If they put it up by 45 to 4.5%, they seem to be overreacting and potentially killing off the, um, the resurgent economy. If they did nothing, then it would seem to be weak, which they didn't want to do. So consequently, when they met on the 22nd of March, they voted 7-2 in favour of increasing the bank rate by a quarter percent to 4.25, which is still the highest rate for 14 years. Um, stronger global growth than expected restricted the increase higher, as I said. Also, the fresh banking crisis held them back a bit because, I mean, who knows where that is going to reverberate onto. Uh, and the inflation blip, again, probably stopped them from keeping inf interest rates steady as she goes. I think I reported yeah. in the market wrap, if I may say, sorry, that there seemed to be sentiment on both sides of the Atlantic that rates have perhaps settled and that things weren't going to change. Obviously, things are changing on an ongoing basis with the price of oil and a variety of other things, so we don't really know that. But it seems like we returned to a bit of calm you know, that we had before that crazy time with those two people. I've now forgotten both their names. And when's the next Bank of England meeting? Um, 11th of May. You can have a Google around and see what people think is going to happen. I think until this week, people thought things were going to be flat. Other people are saying the rates may well go up again to 4.6% before settling down to 3% over the next five years as inflation falls. If you look at the, you know, the mortgage swaps, mortgage swaps are down below 4% for 12 months hence. But there's a lot of vibration going on there, a lot of directionless volatility which means that people don't really know what's going on. And most of it is fueled, I think, by the banks rather than uh, by the actual institutions in charge. The banks are, are going, oh, God, what's going on? Oh, dear, how can we make lots of money without upsetting people and so on? I was reading the other day about the shadow banking system, which, uh, again, is so shady that it's all in darkness, uh, but it's a huge pile of extra lending and no one really knows quite what's going to happen to it. And, and it's also, because it's unregulated, it's threatened by uh, bank runs. So, yeah, it is a kind of watch this space with banks all, all around the world, although the Bank of England says that the UK is relatively safe, but uh, still watch this space. There was an article uh, which I was reading, written by Hugh Dixon uh, in the Economics Observatory, uh, which talked about uh, going to have a positive real interest rates for the first time since the global financial crash. So what we have there is that the uh, Bank of England is going to be heading, you, you talked about this, that historically interest rates have been around 4% and that the recent last 15 years has been unusual where it's been so low uh, since the global crash of 2008. 
there is an equilibrium rate. This is what I was uh, learning in my reading. Uh, there's an equilibrium rate for the Bank of England, uh, which is where the interest rates are slightly higher than the inflation rate. So that's a natural balance for the economy. And it uh, it, it makes sense if you think about it. It's, it means that it, it's a good place to park your money. But it's the real interest rate that determines the saving and investment decisions of households and firms, and hence the, the GDP of a country. And the equilibrium real interest rate is usually seen as being positive, reflecting the fact that when you invest capital, you should on average get out more than you put in. So it was an interesting article. It was actually reported also in The Economist on the same thing, saying that to have interest rates at 0.5%, where there's no point having money in the bank, just doesn't make any financial sense. And coming back to it, being at something like a 4% is is very positive for the economy. And people are moaning about it, saying, you know, interest rates are so high, how will I be able to borrow? Well, it's just the way it is. You, know, you need to have interest rates that are positive, as you rightly say, for companies to do something with their money so they actually do make something if it's in, in cash. You also made the point that the Bank of England is going to shift from uh, QE, the quantitative easing, to QT, which is quantitative tightening. The QT will take a little bit longer. It's obviously still got to kind of market watch and it's got to keep its eye on both inflation and what's happening to the economy. Uh, But uh, at the bottom of the article, my eye was drawn to uh, the further reading section, uh, which had a link to um, the staff working paper number 845, Eight Centuries of Global Real Interest Rates, RTG, and the Supra-Secular Decline, 1311 to 2018. Uh, so there's a bit of bedtime reading for you. RTG is the historical relation between real wealth returns and the broader real growth that's assumed a central role in the current debates on long-term inequality trends. Uh, it was a little bit too high for Luton in economics, in my understanding, but uh, I find it comforting that such things are written and that there are people who who worry about such things, the real equilibrium rates from 1311 to 2018. Uh, so, as I say, a bit of bedtime reading for you. But I'm going to interject there a sec. I mean, I was reading um, the 18-year market cycle again this week and talking about how it fits in. And you know, he went back, was it Fred um, Houseman? Harris, Fred Harrison. Harris, Fred Harrison, yeah. yeah. He went back to, for 200 years analyzing it and it's very easy to make figures fit you know going back but pointedly did do that research and it was also mirrored in the 1950s in the in america and so he harrison actually got it from the us but the point is that if it's true we could well be after five years of doing nothing in london at the start of london starting to outstrip the rest of the country again so a positive it's something for the markets. It's interesting that though, isn't it? You know, the what he was saying. I mean, you know, I was chatting to someone yesterday and they were saying that, well, it's a load of rubbish. Well, you know, it may well be, but it does also hold true and has seemingly held true, you know, for quite a while. And the guy, Fred Harris, has got some pretty good uh, credentials in that he predicted quite a few of the, the economic crashes over the past sort of 40 years. So, you know, it's an interesting, you know, but as with anything, you should use it alongside your own reading and research and you know, make your own decision on it. Uh, yes, I was actually... Uh, the, uh, Fred Harrison's book, uh, it was actually propping up my computer. So I, um, 
I pulled it out so that I could. Uh, yes, it's called Boom Bust House Prices Banking and the Depression of 2010 by Fred Harrison. Uh, and that's, uh, yes, as I say, an explanation of the 18 year property cycle. I like the fact that, and you had this in your market wrap, Stuart, the, um, there is a sort of psychological basis for it because it's about people being cautious, uh, banks uh, being uh, subject to a lending squeeze, then people being overconfident and piling in. It, it's a kind of the 18 year property cycle tracks a kind of herd mentality of people getting overexcited about property and then overcautious. So it does make a kind of sense, but uh, whether it's true or not, I don't. I couldn't say, but uh, read the book and you'll find out. Uh, so, it actually, it actually, sorry, Paul, it actually does mirror also what goes on in the stock market. You should say, get the same thing. You get people, you know, 75% of people buying the top 25% of the market. And it's yeah. the same with property. You know, people are over naturally exuberant at the top and it shouldn't be. He calls that the buyer's curse, doesn't he? Which is what, like his final phase. He breaks it down to a couple I think it's five different stages. And that last one is, yeah, the buyer's curse. So it's basically by the time, you know, the news that there's a explosive growth phase going on in stocks or shares or in property, by the time it reaches layman's, normal people that aren't in the market, it's, uh, you know, it's been so long and it's too late that they're buying at the very peak. So they're the ones that are going to get sort of um, hit the worst if it corrects. Well, let's talk about what's happening in the uh, the property market uh, at the moment, Callum. Yeah, a uh, a buyer's market. I mean, we this is something we've been talking to people about recently. You know, it's um, as we say, always never a good time, never a bad time. I mean, in a rising market, it's a good time to buy because you know prices are going up. But in a in a falling market, we've had seven months of sort of small house price falls. That's a buying opportunity. You know, because you can negotiate a better um, a better price on property than you could three months ago, four months ago, twelve months ago. So, uh, according to the bit of blurb I've written here, prices are dropping, and there are many pressures on sellers that buyers can sometimes exploit by trying to negotiate price drops. Sellers might be in a chain, and they might have their hearts set on moving from one place, moving on from the place they are selling. Uh, the actual process of selling is often very slow and nerve wracking for the seller. You know, in the hot market of 2021 and early 2022, especially for houses with a bit of space, the buyers had to make handsome offers and compete with each other to buy heaps of other people. I know that from experience, trying to sort of buy a terraced house in 2020, 15, 20 people going to look at them and they wouldn't give you a look in. I saw one article which uh, said that sellers can no longer float things on the market at a high price to test for offers. That you know, the advice was, you know, price things correctly if you if you are uh, wanting to sell. So uh, let's have a, another look at the the right move market report, the latest one. Uh, the headline said cautious recovery, but larger home sales lag behind. Uh, what's the story there, Callum? Uh, well, they're saying that the typical first-time buyer properties, that's one in two bed flats, are leading a spring recovery, and sales of these kinds of property are only 4% behind the normal market of 2019. This means that asking prices for these properties are only £500 below last year's peak. And, and this is you know, this is true. We can see it ourselves in sort of what people are looking to buy and what the market's doing. I mean, obviously, throughout COVID, you had that race for space and People trying to buy big three, four bedroom houses in the countryside so they can have an office and a bit of space or whatever it may be. Now it's the opposite. You know, everyone's sort of realizing, well, we do need to be in the office. We can't work from home all the time. Plus the um, 
the cost of living crisis and the energy crisis, it's far cheaper to heat a one bed flat and a new one bed flat as an example, uh, which is the end of the market that's doing the best is new one and two beds versus heating an old sort of three or four bed house. So um, yeah, flats are doing very well with the reversal of the race for space. Just to finish with the right move report, they're saying sales agreed recently in the top of the ladder sector are 10%. Uh, so that's those houses we were talking about. They're 10% behind where they were. Uh, and the second step of category are 13% behind the 2019 numbers. Okay. There were some gloomier house price index figures, the nationwide, for instance. The headline there was that the house prices saw their seventh consecutive monthly f- decline in March. Uh, and the comment on the figures was that... Uh, from Robert Gardner, the chief economist at Nationwide. Uh, March saw a further decline in annual high price growth, with prices down 3.1% compared with the same month last year. March also saw a further monthly price fall of 0.8%, the seventh in a row, which leaves prices 4.6% below their August peak after taking account of seasonal effects. The housing market reached a turning point last year as a result of the financial market turbulence which followed the mini-budget. Since then, activity has remained subdued. The number of mortgages approved for house purchase purchase remained weak at 43,500 cases in February, almost 40% below the prevailing mortgage approvals a year ago. So they're kind of all saying the same thing and that basically the turbulence of last year was pretty horrible. Uh, What's happening now, though? Now... We're seeing a return to more of the normal behavior, which was, you know, city centers going up in value and in the country lagging behind. And that is certainly, you know, what we're seeing in likes of uh, Manchester still, Birmingham, Sheffield, Nottingham, Derby, places like that. There's a real, a real drive for people to try and find their small studios, one beds, two beds to actually either purchase or rent. And it's meaning the rental market is going absolutely crazy. So um, centre of the cities are very strong, but if you go out into the country, like Wales, it was up by 35% nearly in some places, it's in a terrible situation and things aren't selling and people can't move. So it's just an effect. Okay, well, we'll come on to the rental figures in a minute. I, I'm just interested, you, you might have seen, I came across a, a YouTube channel uh, called UK Property Market Stats, which uh, does it week by week. And it's uh, really for estate agents. And it talks about the number of new instructions coming on, the number of cumulative sales from the, you know, and it's every week, but full of uh, fascinating facts and figures and some anecdotal evidence from different agents about what's going on. One interesting point they made was that the older retirees are downsizing. Uh, so they're moving to smaller houses, but not any that it's not downsizing in cost. They're actually, like you say, they're just shedding their high heating bills. But uh, they are quite confident that the market has returned to a kind of normal stability. Uh, and they do lots of comparisons with the 2016, 2017, 2018 and 2019 figures. And all of the figures at the moment are pretty equivalent to what was going on there. So uh, quite comforting. Uh, and a useful show uh, is called the UK Property Market Stats Show. So the rental figures, uh, there was an interesting report from Zoopla. Let's uh, have a look at that. Um, uh, in the article was called, When Will the Pressure on Renters Start to Ease? When will it start to ease? Well, Zoopla's rental index shows rents are up 11% last year and up 20% since the start of the pandemic. Uh, rents rising fastest in Manchester 
and London, uh, where rents are up 15%. I think London and Manchester, you know, it's partly due to people actually returning to the cities now, whereas we had an exodus there, um, start of COVID, throughout COVID. Uh, the economy reopened mid-2021, creating demand again near work, uh, according to the, the report. Students have returned uh, and there's not enough purpose-built student accommodation, uh, so pressures on other rental spaces. Uh, record net immigration, including overseas students and first-time buyers hit by uh, high mortgages, so they're staying out in rentals. So all of these sort of factors creating a bit of a bottleneck on rents and demand for properties. I mean, we've got a um, one of the, the guys in the team in our London office is looking for a, a property to rent in London. And it's, uh, you know, he was saying that 15, again, 15 plus people going to each of the viewings and the uh, competition is massive. So there's heaps and heaps of people competing for a reduced uh, supply. Yes, a lot of pressure on it. And uh, they make the point that 350,000 first-time buyers per year usually buy houses, but that's stalled, obviously, because of the high cost of mortgages and the increased deposits and cautiousness from banks and so on. Uh, so the, and that the rental market has uh, grown, the, the actual stock has grown just 1% since 2016. Uh, so the demand for rented homes is running high, 50% above the five-year average. The average estate agent has 33% fewer homes for rent than before the pandemic. Uh, so renters are staying even longer in their properties. It's just very, very slow growth in the overall stock. Great Britain has 5.6 million rented homes, uh, up from 5.5 million in 2016, with private landlords owning 85% of all rented homes. And tax changes and regulations have stalled new investment by private landlords, while some have decided to sell. The net result of those that selling rented homes are offsetting the impact of new investment coming onto the market. This marks a big change from the period 2000 to 2016 when the rental market doubled in size. So the affordability stuff is still going to rumble on this year, though, Stuart. Absolutely. All right. They made the point, really, that the affordability issues will start to weigh on the actual market itself uh, and affordability, and therefore price increases will slow. They're expecting rent rises to average 4 to 5% this year. The, the data shows rent's percentage of average earnings are up at or above maximum levels seen in the last 10 years, which is true. You know, it's, um, it's very difficult for people in rent to certainly save any money with over getting out and getting into the market. So, you know, if they just bear with it, then five years from now, with the effect of inflation, pay increases, then that will have changed. It doesn't mean there's going to be any more rentals on the market anytime soon, I don't believe. Yeah. And just to put some numbers on those student figures, uh, there were 680,000 overseas students in the UK in 2021-22, which was an increase of 122,000 over the two years. Um, and that was due to the changes in the visa rules. Final thoughts on where your researchers are taking you? From my own perspective, I think that I can just, you know, from what Ricks are saying, you know, the Royal Institute of Child Surveyors, they're saying there's less instructions to buy and more to sell amongst landlords, which would indicate that the rental market is going to get tighter because of that. That was the reading I was looking at today. And I guess, yeah, to add to that, I mean, you you sort of, you, you know, there's always opportunity and you need to buy based on what's in front of you or play what's in front of you, as they say in football, you know, so what is doing well and what will continue to do well at the moment, it's it's those more central or uh, satellite places that are easy, easily commutable. 
uh, one and two bed flats and new one and two bed flats at that at the moment are doing very well. Um, you know, so, so yeah, play what's in front of you and buy based on what the market is doing and what this data suggests. Yeah, I think I'll leave it at that. I would say to add to that, using the great Wayne Gretzky, he always used to say, I play where the puck is going, not where it is. So where's and it going then? You've got to look, okay. where's it going to? Where is the next growth going to be? Talking about that, I was reading a book the other day. I know a very rare um, thing for me to do is actually one of those picture books. Um, <laughs> and um, the guy in there was talking about potentially where the puck is going to be is as we get more and more of a renter's market and more and more young people become used to just purely renting from a young age, the growth in the market is going to be sort of high quality rental places with creature comforts built in, you know, the things that sort of younger people are used to now. And if you spend a bit of money putting those more luxury type things in, then people are going to uh, stay longer term and treat it more as home. So potentially that's where, you know, uh, the opportunity or the puck is going to be. Well, that's, yes. I can say just like that is that exactly that is what build to rent is in Smithfield and Birmingham, you know, the stuff they're building there. Yeah. is that more comfort thing and then you can you could lift that up and take it across the channel and it's why you know the germans for example when you when you rent a place in germany it comes without a kitchen because mm. the previous tenants take their kitchen with them because they spent so much money making the kitchen good they're not leaving it behind and so yeah. they make their flats as if they were perfect and that is the continental model if i can call it that you can use that Copyright it if you want. Which is continental model. Sixty-six percent of people in Germany rent, according to um, figures. So you know, and, and, and they take the kitchens with them. Can you believe what, it? What about the, hey. the toilets? Do they take those. You know, a lot of people. Uh, but, be stupid now. That'd be silly. Okay, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Don't one of the that out. one of the depressing things I used to see was uh, in a high turnover street. Uh, you'd have people buying a house and then immediately ripping out the old kitchen and putting a new, brand new fitted kitchen in. Uh, and then three years later, someone uh, they'd sell and someone else would come and do the same. And it did seem such a waste. So, yes, the continental model, the Italians are very keen on keeping their own kitchens and taking them with them. Uh, but uh, that's it for today. Uh, thank you to Callum and Stuart. Uh, join us again next week to make your Monday, we hope, a little bit more informed and entertained. Until then, it's goodbye from Stuart. Cheerio. Uh, goodbye from Callum. Goodbye. And uh, goodbye from me, Paul Shearer. Have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast series produced for APW by Emma Holton at Brilliant Audio. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe, hit like, share it with your friends. If you didn't, keep stum. You can find more episodes in all your usual podcast places.